All right, so I'm here with Dan. Uh, Dan owns uh, Pathology Watch. It's a very interesting company. I want to hear more about it. But uh, before we get into what you're currently doing, Dan, do you want to go a little bit into your background? And, um, you know, I, I kind of looked you up on LinkedIn. I stalked you a little bit. And I see that uh, you, you are a Harvard business graduate. And uh, you've done a lot of things in, in your past. So uh, you've started multiple uh, successful companies. So tell me a little bit about that. And then we'll go into Pathology Watch, if that's okay. Sure. Um, thanks. And thanks for having me. Um, uh, my background was I started out in computer engineering. Uh, I hit, when I went to undergrad, I, I really thought I was going to do uh, medicine. Um, but I started taking some uh, electrical engineering classes and just really uh, fell in love with um, systems and how they work and how to make them them more efficient. Um, and my actually my, my very first company, um, I started when I was 19 in, in college. Um, I uh, I went to a local um, Chinese food restaurant. At, at this point, I had maybe seventeen dollars left in my uh, bank account, and um, I I told them, uh, you know, look, I'll build you a website for um, if you let me eat here for the next uh, for the next few months. So um, I ended up with about five hundred dollars in in Chinese uh, Chinese food gift certificates, um, and it's been a <laughs> my career has been up from there. But um, it was a it was a good start for being uh, for being an entrepreneur. Um, I went on to, uh, to go to HBS and then this is my, um, third venture back startup. Uh, I have, uh, I've sold about, um, $50 million uh, worth of exit, uh, exits in, in prior venture back startups, um, that I've had. Uh, so when I was thinking about starting this one, I was coming from a place of, uh, you know, have, having financial security, um, wanting to do something that really makes a difference and then combining my two passions, which are engineering and, uh, uh, healthcare, helping other people. Yeah. Awesome. What do you, what do you like about engineering? I like engineering too, but what do you like about it? Um, you know, for, so what made me really passionate, I think was probably the first time, the first project that I got in engineering was, uh, we had to build what's called a state machine. Um, it's basically, we were building a, um, uh, like a vending machine where you, you put in a, you put in a quarter and it, and it stays in a state and then waits for the next, uh, for the next item. Um, and just thinking through, like being able to think through the entire universe of conditions of, uh, of, of what this device would do, um, I think really appealed to me. And I, and I also think that, uh, engineering is a way that we solve, um, a lot of the world's problems, uh, going forward. And I, and, and so I think it, it, it appealed that these are these are solutions that could be solved and it's a lot less theoretical and a more practical in a way that helps people. Yeah, I always say engineers are gonna save the world uh, as well as entrepreneurs. And if you, if you combine them, that's a powerful combination. You know? Yeah, uh, absolutely. When you get like Elon Musk, you know, he's gonna definitely change the world, I think. Are you, uh, do you like Elon? Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, he's, I, I just actually finished reading his biography. Um, and I, I think the biggest thing that I was really impressed with is that uh, he's willing to bet the farm um, every single time that, <laughs> um, uh, you know, he's, he's willing to get to that last dollar to chase a, to chase a dream. And sometimes the dream starts with something like wanting to send a hamster to Mars. Um, and it becomes this, you know, huge, this huge successful company. Um, or just some almost like personal, personal passion and look at all the, the benefits that have come from, uh, from that drive. Yeah. It just makes you wonder. It's, it, it, he just must be the most unique person on the planet because he's got all these traits that would make a perfect, uh, entrepreneur to save the world. You know, um, you know, it's definitely, uh, extremely intelligent. He's also got the entrepreneurial mind as well. And he has a stomach for handling entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneur journeys. And uh, it's interesting. 
Um, so, uh, so tell me a little bit about um, your, your first companies. So your first companies, uh, you know, how, how did you venture into those and what, what did they entail? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about the first um, venture back startup that I, um, that I led and, and um, it was uh, not in healthcare at all. Actually, it was, uh, I think I was probably 24 years old at the time. So still learning how to interact with uh, you know, venture capitalists and, and uh, even, even balancing a, a financial statement. I mean, these, these were things that were new to me. Um, uh, it was a, a mobile app. You, you walk into a grocery store and you scan a product like peanut butter um, and the mobile application would find digital coupons uh, related to what you were looking at. So peanut butter, jelly, bread, anything, anything in that, in that category, what, what you had initially scanned. Um, and then it also cross-referenced things like if you, um, uh, you know, if you were in front of a donut, it's like, hey, you might also want milk. Here's a, here's a coupon for milk. Um, and people loved, absolutely loved this experience in the store. Um, we had, we had coupon moms that were, uh, you know, downloading this app and, uh, using it like, you know, two, three times a day, <laughs> um, which is, which is very exciting to see. Um, and the, the magic of it in the, in the background was that uh, all you had to do was tap redeem on your phone and, and that, that coupon went onto your store loyalty card. So when you checked out, um, the discounts came off automatically. Um, and so for the consumer, uh, that was, that was a great, um, a great experience. Uh, what was, what was tough about that business was, um, that there was really this, this almost three way chicken and egg. Um, you had to, you had to have enough consumers on the app in order to get coupon inventory from the, from the manufacturers. Um, and you had to have a manufacturer coupon in order to get into the grocery store. Um, and the grocery store didn't want to, uh, participate unless you, um, unless you had enough users. And so, um, and then of course users didn't want to use it unless you had uh, coupons and stores. Um, and so, uh, when you think about like tackling a problem like that, we, we, um, uh, thought about how to get the most users onto the platform quickest. Um, and so we actually started with just uh, free store circulars and just free, like good deals that we would surface. Um, and that built up that built up the user base to the point where we could get a, a coupon, and then once we had a coupon, then we could um, we could get into the stores. Um, anyways, the, the long story short is that it, it worked. We got it into about eight thousand grocery stores across the country. Um, we ended up uh, selling the company to um, to Ebates, um, and I had a lot of fun uh, building these these companies in uh, or building this particular company in in the grocery stores. We were you know running around in the aisles and trying to make coupons work is, is actually a fairly fun. How did you, uh, how did you get them into so many grocery stores? How did you do that? Um, it, the dynamics in the industry are that uh, if you have if you have the coupons, the stores want to um, uh, the stores want to provide that to their customers. They don't want to limit the discounts because the uh the stores actually get reimbursed um for those those coupons from uh from the consumer packaged goods companies like uh, you know johnson and johnson etc yeah. um and so once you have that that coupon inventory um all of the stores uh really wanted to participate with us um the technical integration was a was a, a long tedious process because um these grocery stores they have um they just really have one server in the back that then controls all of the front lane servers and so there was a several minute lag even to, to just get these coupons through their systems. Um, and so I, I actually spent most of my time figuring out how to make these coupons get through legacy software uh, and hardware <laughs> um, a lot faster. Got it. Um, and, uh, and so I think people are wondering what you sold that company for. <laughs> 
you don't mind me asking. You know, it was, uh, I actually don't know that it was public, uh, publicly um, disclosed. <laughs> okay, no worries, no worries, I understand, no, no worries. Yeah, but I, I can tell you it was, a, um, you know, it was at least a, a several X return um, for, the, uh, for, the, for the venture investors. Got it, okay, cool, that's great, I love it. Um, okay, cool. So uh, going on to the next company that you started, what was that company and, and, uh, and you yeah. that company? Yeah, and this one, uh, this one I can actually be a little bit more public on the, uh, on the valuation on. <laughs> um, the, uh, so we, we started this, this company called Board Vitals, um, and we recognized that there was a need for higher quality medical education. Um, half of everything that a doctor learns is out of date uh, in about five years. Um, it just, it, it, it's going, the, the industry is moving so fast. Um, and so the, the old model of using textbooks to study um, for information. Uh, so when we looked at these textbooks, I mean, it, it really was like 40, at least 40% of these textbooks just didn't make sense. Um, and so how do you, how do you fix that? Um, because medical knowledge is simultaneously generated in um, hospitals and uh, practicing doctors, um, like medical journals, uh, you, uh, people recording videos. There, there is a there is a plethora of new of new information generated all the time. Um, and so we started these uh, assessment question banks that, that almost acted as like living documents um, of medical knowledge. Um, they we had multiple um, full time physicians on staff. And we went out and we licensed the very best content from these hospitals and journals um, and everyone else across the industry um, and brought them all together um, into the system that then could be um, continually updated. So as soon as a guideline changed or a new video came out that was describing a, a new a new procedure technique, um, we would be updating that content. Um, we, uh, um, uh, we sold primarily to individual physicians that were preparing for their board exams, um, but also we sold to uh, physicians that were needing to complete their continuing medical education credits. Um, and the, uh, uh, the company grew, I mean, very quickly. Um, in probably about four or five years, we got, we got revenue up to about um, 20 million, um, a mix of recurring revenue and, uh, as well as consumer-based revenue. Um, we were in over 100 um, uh, 100 hospital institutions as their primary training mechanism. So I, I was very pleased with that. Um, and for me personally, I think what I'm, I'm most proud of is that, uh, that we, we donated a vaccine for every question bank that we sold or every product that we sold. Um, and we ended up uh, donating about 500,000 uh, vaccines to uh, the developing world. Um, and that program is actually still going on. Uh, my guess is by the end of next year, there will, there will probably be millions of, of vaccines donated. Um, I ended up selling that to uh, selling that to private equity. Um, uh, eventually, it ended up being um, run by by Blackstone. Um, so I, I had some experience working in a um, private equity organization, which is which is a little bit different than, uh, or actually a lot different than working in as an as a solo entrepreneur. I feel like being an entrepreneur is, is represents the ultimate freedom, because if you have the skill set, you can essentially do anything you want. I just I, I just not everybody can be an entrepreneur. Um, I, I don't know if like what your belief is on that, if it's innate or if it's something that's, you know, that you can develop, but, um, I feel like it's so it represents, you know, a level of freedom that, uh, is not attained by everyone, <laughs> you know? So I feel like it's just what, like, what are your thoughts on that? Um, 
So I, I think that there is freedom probably in the beginnings of a company. <laughs> um, I, I think that, uh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, the probably the first and, and for me, a lot of times, you know, the first year or two is uh, is very exciting because you're solving you're working on solving the problem and, and you're almost uh, there's this sense of like being an explorer. Right. Um, I think we as we as humans um, or like early on in our history, like we we traveled so much and, and, and journeyed over a lot of territory and we've, we've become a little bit more sedentary. And so I like that. Uh, I feel very fulfilled being on that that discovery portion of the journey um, where you're you're learning things about a market that you haven't explored before. You're understanding the dynamics uh, where the you know, where the power is, where the dollars are distributed, how things are reimbursed. Um, and then, but then I think, uh, you know, once you get to, at least for me, one, once I get a company to probably about like series a stage, um, uh, the, you, you start to have a, a set of responsibilities. You have a, you simultaneously have a duty to, um, customers, uh, employees, um, your investors, uh, and to the community. Um, and it, it, it does feel like it can be stressful to simultaneously manage um, all of those responsibilities and, and knowing that if you're going to make people happy, you have to make trade-offs um, between those. Um, and with my current company right now, like Pathology Watch, you know, we've, we've raised probably uh, about $10 million in, in capital. Um, and that, that does take a lot of, I feel like that takes a lot of time and responsibility to manage that uh, effectively. So I, I maybe don't feel as free as I did uh, a year or two ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think um, when I bring investors in my company, they uh, it will be it will feel less free. But because um, you you definitely have it's not a bad or a good thing. It's just you're more responsible for the the capital that people have given you. You know. <laughs> yeah, and and it's just different. Um, but also it brings you know it brings some advantages of, um, hey, we can take uh, we can take a couple more risks or hire that extra salesperson. Um, and depending on the industry you're in, uh, we have to we have to land grab a lot of uh, a lot of territory before anyone else gets there because it's a, a brand new technology. Um, and so taking on that that capital to um, like to win the footprint, uh, it's the right thing to do for the business. But I, I I would encourage entrepreneurs to think very carefully about: Do you actually have to have this capital? Um, and is it is it worth like some of the risks that come along with it um, that you know, you might, you might end up needing more capital or investors or you're going to have a lot more oversight. Um, it's, it's better. So I, uh, and, and that path is different for every company and, and every person. Some, some people work great with, um, with huge infusions of, of rocket fuel. <laughs> um, and some people work better as like being like, uh, careful, um, uh, cautious operators that, that, uh, build companies with high efficiencies. Definitely. So t tell me a little bit more about pathology watch. Kind of um, yeah, so uh, the the premise of, of Pathology Watch or the the driver um, is that we we know that at this point AI and deep learning are are more effective than humans at reading cases, um, and this is all over the news in our industry. You know, AI is a, a, image recognition AI is at the point where it's ninety nine point eight ninety nine point nine percent effective. It never gets tired. It's fast, uh, and it's 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 cost efficient too. Um, uh, and we're also finding that, you know, humans and uh, machines working together end up producing much better patient outcomes um, than, than either one uh, by themselves. It's just the, it's just the nature of um, just the nature of the machine. Um, the, the, when we thought about 
that this technology is here, but it's not really adopted by the market. Um, we thought through what is the best uh, strategic approach um, to to get this um, to get this into the workflow. Um, a lot of companies are trying to sell AI to, to hospitals right now, and, and that, that's a very long and protracted sales cycle. Um, it, it takes over a year um, to get into these accounts, um, and they're, they're resistant because they, they don't want to be replaced by um, this technology. That, that pathology department uh, you know, wants to protect their jobs, um, and understandably so. Um, and so when, when we thought about what, what is going to be a faster entry point into the market, we thought about going after uh, outpatient clinics. So that's um, it, when you go to your dermatologist or OBGYN or, or GI or, or your prostate um, doctor. Um, those are all where you're, you're going to a small office, maybe a few physicians, maybe a couple of physician assistants. Um, those sales cycles to to win that volume uh, is more like one to two months, um, and they're very um, they're they're a lot more receptive. You can you can get a meeting, um, you uh, you can convince them to give you your samples. You can show them very clearly the benefits, um, and it's typically a single decision maker. Um, and so that's that's really what we um, where we saw as our market entry point. So the. The way that the way that these samples flow um, is, you go into the dermatologist uh, and you get a you get a biopsy. They they see something looks funny on your skin, um, they cut it out. Um, right now, the way that sample flows is that uh, they the physician's office puts it in a UPS or a FedEx box and send it sends it to Quest Labs um, or one of the major laboratories. Um, they turn it into a, a biopsy or they they. Uh, turn it into a slide, um, and then look, the physicians there look at the slide under a microscope, um, and then they they'll type up um, they'll type up a report, uh, and then that report gets faxed to um, back to the physician, or maybe it's made available through an interface. Um, this whole process is a fairly um, is a fairly slow, inefficient way of of doing things, and and so the way that it works in our world. Um, in, in its final state uh, is that physicians um, send us the samples, we convert it into a slide, but in, and then we put it into a, a high throughput scanner. Um, we digitize that image, um, and then we, uh, we run it through the AI. Um, we submit the, um, the report as well as the image um, into the dermatologist's uh, electronic medical record system. So it's a it's much more efficient for the dermatologist, um, and also it's uh, it allows us to introduce uh, artificial intelligence into the process of um, reading these skin cancer samples. Um, the result is that uh, our skin cancer uh, detection um, is very accurate. Uh, it's also faster turnaround time for patients to get their diagnoses. Um, and uh, we're saving the dermatologist's office a ton of time that instead of waiting through old reports, we're really giving them everything that they need and they can see the image of the actual tumor, um, which is really important for things like uh, clinical correlation. Um, so we've been growing, this business has been growing extremely fast. Uh, it's clear that we've hit a, a market need, especially on the dermatology side. Um, there are, uh, we're in about 20 dermatology clinics right now, um, and with, uh, with another 15 in the pipeline that we're, that we're just starting to get set up. I feel like, uh, where, uh, the two, the two industries that could be most affected by AI and where AI could be ubiquitous is in pathology and radiology. Yeah, I think there. I think there are probably three. I think that's that's about right. There's um, uh, we see radiology, and you know, radiology is actually fairly well adopted. Most people don't realize that uh, 
a lot of radiology scans now actually are being processed um, by a computer in a, in a diagnostic assist type fashion. Mm -hmm. um, pathology is a lot, a, a lot fewer companies right now chasing pathology, probably only, you know, four or five leaders that, that we know of um, you know, for a, you know, for a $20 billion space. Um, and then uh, medical billing uh, has opportunities for um, AI. There's, there, there's some efficiencies that can be captured by looking at historical payment patterns. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't, I, it's going to be a long time before AI takes over the rest of clinical workflows or before it replaces your doctor, but for um, certain specific diagnostics, I think, I think we're there and the, the state of technology is very clearly there. Do, do you feel like pathologists and radiologists should be, feel threatened or do you feel it's not really a big deal? Eventually they're going to work alongside the AI as opposed to being replaced by it? Yeah, I, I think for the next, um, I think for the next five years, uh, it will be they'll, where they're working, well, they're, where they will be working in tandem. Um, I think if you, if you look more like 10 years out, um, I, I wouldn't be encouraging someone that was uh, thinking about a pathology or radiology residency um, to go that path. Um, there, there will all, I think there will for a long time, um, be a need for, um, the really top tier, uh, pathologists, probably 25, 30% of pathologists, um, that deal with, uh, like abnormalities or that, um, continue, that can continue to help refine the AI. They will be around for quite a while. Um, I think the pathologists that, that read mostly, uh, either simple or benign cases, I, I, I think that portion of the market does end up getting replaced um, by machines over the over the coming years. Wow. Okay. That's a strong statement. Um, <clears throat> so how did you come about uh, wanting to do this, uh, starting this particular company? Did you do research on it? Did you find a strong need in the marketplace? And you're like, wow, there's just only four competitors and it's a $20 billion market, like you said. Like, how did you come about this particular um, technology? or wanting to develop it? Yeah, um, for me, this was, a, uh, this was a pretty important personal um, passion. So um, the skin cancer runs in my, runs in my fam family. I've had um, uh, two relatives with uh, fairly malignant tumors and um, their lives were literally saved by uh, like great diagnostics um, because in, fortunately in the US we have um, we have a robust system um, of pathologists, uh, and we're we're good at uh, fairly early screening, um, and the diag and the diagnosis was right. Uh, and unfortunately, half of the world does not have access to um, basic cancer diagnostics right now. Something that we think of as uh, um, very commonplace, or how could this not be? Like they're just a, for a lot of people in the world, um, literally billions of people in the world, like they they cannot even get an early detection. Um, and an early detection in a lot of cases just means a removal, like a simple removal of the tumor. And if you wait too long, then it uh, it becomes you know so disastrous and survival rates drop to um, you know such a low percentage in with something like melanoma. Um, uh, I I personally, especially with my family history, um, uh, I've I've had skin cancer. Fortunately, mine was benign, and so it was just easily removed. Uh, slow, like very just slow growth kind of tumor. Um, but I, I, given that I've been lucky enough to have these things, I, I wanted to make sure that these are available to everywhere. And most emerging countries just simply aren't going to have the uh, education environment um, to uh, produce qualified specialists. Uh, and so AI is the path forward, I think, for uh, most of the world. 
Do you feel like most companies that uh, start um, in the life science space, the impetus behind starting those companies is a personal issue that somebody had with a family member or themselves, and that was something that motivated them to to start a company, and that's how they're why they're so passionate about it. Yeah, I think so. Um, or uh, there's there's kind of um, uh, it's almost like getting back to like the Elon Musk conversation. Sometimes you just have a like a passion for like adventuring into something or solving something, even if you don't know exactly how you're going to do it. Um, and so that like I meet a lot of people in, in life science that they're, um, they're willing to uh, bet a lot on something that only has 20 or 25% odds of success. Um, similar to, you know, launching a rocket into space. Like I, there, there was, you know, less than a 25% chance of that. Oh, there was like a 2% chance. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and so you, you, I think with life science in particular, you have to be ready to spend, um, you know, a decade on something that may not hit. Uh, and um, I, I guess maybe part of me feels like if, if I wasn't going to do it, like who does? Um, I don't know that there are a lot of people that are lining up to take on risks. Um, I was just reading that actually entrepreneurship in, in America is uh, statistically at a, at a low point. Um, and despite all of the, the talk and hype, we have less people starting companies. Um, and I get it. It's hard. Um, you know, we, we have to deal with, uh, you know, a, a solid six different medical uh, regular regulatory bodies and, and rules um, to, to make this company happen. Um, and that's not easy. Uh, and it, it takes 80 hour weeks and it takes a lot of like personal sacrifice. So I think at some level there does have to be like a, a deep personal passion um, to, to make that, that tough of a journey and, and the, the, li- the journeys in life science, like are really are legitimately that hard. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, and they're, they're not as, they're, they're much harder than other industries because in other industries, there's not as much regulation, uh, in those industries. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a combination of, um, you know, look, the, the AI was, the AI was legitimately hard to build. Um, uh, it took, uh, we had in order to get the the AI to uh, a, like a high level of effectiveness, um, it took feeding in thirty thousand different pieces of cancer, and and that is um, that is tedious from a workflow perspective. That's tedious from like the number of doctors that had to have input, um, and every piece had to be exactly uh, exactly perfect. Um, and uh, so the, the the mountains of effort to to feed in here to make the AI work, um, I think that's one deterrent. And then secondly, yeah, I mean, re- regulatory is a um, is a fairly heavy heavy deterrent. Um, and I think uh, you know the, also like taking care of um, taking care of employees in a, in a way that you know you're that in the U.S. you know we're required to um, uh, cover a, a number of um, like payroll related items. It's, it is, it, I, I feel candidly like it is a fairly large burden, especially on a small employer that just doesn't have like HR infrastructure yet um, or, uh, you know, people to just take care of things. It's, a, it's really all on you to do the accounting, finance, HR, um, programming, yeah, you name it. <laughs> what, what, what do you think special about you that you were able to develop uh, these uh, companies to the level that they're at right now? Um, or the sorry, the companies that were in the in the past developed it to the level it was developed to, and then what you're doing now. What do you think is so special about you that allowed you or that facilitated you being this successful at this point? Um, that's a I mean it's a complex question because uh, uh, yeah, yeah um, but I think um, so my 
uh, I, I think actually one of the benefits um, for me was uh, I hated it at the time, but my my dad made me. My dad's a cardiologist. Um, he made me work in his office uh, every summer, um, filing charts and billing medical claims um, and putting you know data, doing data entry in, in, into his office. Um, and uh, <laughs> you know, as a, as a teenager, you want to have your summers back, but. Um, uh, and I think he also only paid me about $5 an hour, <laughs> which I'm, I'm pretty sure was not legal, but I guess it's when it's your son, you can, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. And so, but I think in, I think in doing that, um, you know, I, I, I learned about like the basics of, of how an office works. Um, I learned, um, uh, you know, how hard, like what the pieces are of actually running a medical practice. And I learned about medical billing. And I had no idea I was going to be using that, um, you know, 20 years later. Uh, but but here I am, um, like using those lessons. Um, I also think it it probably was my parents just enforcing like a, a very important sense of hard work. Of um, yes, you are uh, yes you are privileged, but it's not just about that privilege. It is it is about like what you are going to do with that. Um, uh, and I uh, it's it's funny, my dad my dad used the product at, at my last company and um uh he said you know this this isn't half bad which uh from him is a, a is a glowing um endorsement <laughs> so um uh i feel like maybe their i hope their investment paid off um i i think they did a good job raising me and then um uh and then also that but then on their part also um saying that like when i was 18 um you're you know you're on your own like you've got to go and and do this now um and because of that like because they they had prepared me but then um uh cut me off basically um i had to go and start that first business selling uh like selling websites to chinese food restaurants right um uh and yeah with that i mean with that chinese food business like i ended up uh going on and selling to like 15 different restaurants and i learned a lot like in that process, even though it was uh, not a profitable business um, whatsoever, but it it was me learning to to forge an entrepreneurial path like very early and well, probably while my brain was still forming and, and learning those uh, learning those behaviors. Um, anyways, that's a long winded answer to your question, but that's no, no, that's at least how I see it. Definitely, uh, you know, creates um, a level of sophistication in a business owner when they have that kind of history. You know, um, do you feel like? So it, what, what, I, what I've noticed about you is it seems that you're very good at doing uh, qualitative analyses and quantitative analyses of what markets you should be in. And is, am I right about that? And was that, is that related to the, or was that because of the education you received from Harvard? Or is that because it's just, you know, working um, in practical experience? Yeah, um, actually, I think that's a that's a really good question, and actually, I think it probably is one of my best strengths, like as an entrepreneur, is being able to wear both hats. Um, so, as a as an engineer, um, you don't you don't launch until something is 100% um, perfect. Um, you uh, otherwise airplanes fall out of the sky, yeah. um, you know, yeah. as as we saw recently, <laughs> uh, and and you know things fall apart, and so. Um, the training of the mindset of um, how do you build in processes and controls when you need something to be perfect? Um, uh, I think that, uh, and also building a quantitative base there was really important. Um, I think business school, um, business school was was actually a challenge in, in um, adding to that mode of thinking in that 
Um, when you're building a business, you have to make decisions when you only have about 70% of the information that you need, um, and sometimes even less. And so being able to make, um, make decisions where you have maybe some metrics, but you're, you're making a qualitative judgment about um, the overall quality of the market and is there a, like, is there a good entry point um, it, it requires a level of abstraction that I wasn't used to as an engineer. And I, I think the beauty of business school is teaching, is teaching to make uh, decisions and ambiguity. Um, but also at the same time, um, I think business, I think the, the real magic of a business school and in particular HBS, um, the faculty there only teach maybe 10 or 15% of the time, which I think is shocking to most people. And the rest of the time you're, you're learning from your, your classmates and, and it is, um, you are learning to see things from a series of lenses that you have not viewed the world before. Um, every section is constructed with, uh, one engineer, one doctor, one lawyer, um, you know, a couple consultants. Um, and so when, when that marketing person, um, says, oh, this is the way that I would approach it because in my experience as a, like as a chief marketing officer, um, I did this and it worked. Um, you, you learn to see it through, um, through their lens, which, which as a CEO is so important because I have to, on a daily basis, I have to jump into um, almost like 20 different personas or roles um, to try to accomplish everything, especially at this, this early stage. Um, and so for me, business school was uh, like one of the best experiences um, of my life, but it was, it was challenging to, it's challenging to like rewire your brain to see things from other people's perspectives. Um, but that's what I gained from it. Did going from engineering school to uh, business school, did it, did it almost seem like in business school, people made cursory decisions? And like yeah, yeah, they, I mean, they really do. But um, yeah, at first it's a little unsettling, uh, but then you realize it, you almost have to, um, that there's no, if you wait until you have 95% of the information, the opportunity is completely gone because someone else uh, sees that chance. Um, uh, and yeah, you, yeah, there's definitely like some people that are unqualified that in business school are kind of shooting, you know, shooting off. Um, and I, and I think in some ways business, you know, business school wasn't as, uh, like mathematically or, it, or as quite intellectually rigorous as engineering was. Um, but it sure was a, it sure was a good time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. hundred percent. Well, it, it, I think in, uh, the real world, it is very intellectually rigorous. Um, but how do you provide practical experience through textbook, through textbook. Yeah. You know, it's very hard, you know. And that's why I think the, you know, I think most business schools should be, should be case method. Um, it's almost, uh, I think case, the case study method is, is kind of simulating a boardroom um, in that you collect all of these inputs from, uh, from people and then make it, and then make a best decision. Um, and, and I think that what's, what's interesting about business school too, is that there aren't, like there aren't answers. Um, there, there's no like a guide to the right answer for these cases. Um, and it's because in most markets, uh, more than one strategy actually can win. Um, there's not a, there's not a, a single right path. Um, uh, there were just, it, it, when I was working at Board Vitals, there were, um, you know, there were four companies that were, um, you know, doing, uh, you know, north of 20 million a year um, in, in revenue and, and all succeeding very well, highly profitable. Um, and, and each one had a very distinct strategy, but each one had to pick their own path. And I, I think it's, you know, I think it's going to be the same with pathology is that there will be, um, one strategy that works in the outpatient market and there will be a strategy that works in the inpatient market. Um, it's about, uh, picking paths and it's not about picking the right one. It's, it's about picking, uh, one that is actually viable for your, uh, for your particular market. Absolutely. Um, so 
you, you know, you're just so the audience knows, uh, you're going to be presenting at my my uh, life science venture conference uh, very soon. Um, do you want to tell if you're speaking to investors? Do you want to tell the investors what you're looking for with regards to an investment and and uh, what you're currently doing now and how how you plan on progressing in the future? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So um, we just we just closed a five million dollar Series A round um, with uh, with two venture funds participating, um, Springtide Investments and Rock Creek Capital. Um, uh, both both are uh, do kind of health tech related um, investments, uh, and I've, I've actually worked with both in, investors before, so it's um, not first time around. Uh, in in this case, um, we're looking to oversubscribe the round um, by about a, a million. Um, and we would we would like someone to come in and, and participate as a uh, as a follow on um, same terms. We actually just we closed around um, uh, June second. So uh, and from what we're looking for in terms of an investor, we'd prefer someone that um, is coming from uh, a healthcare space. I mean, this is we're we're reimbursed by insurance, um, and so it, it's helpful to have someone who understands like what reimbursement cycles look like and the, and the kind of challenges that are are unique to are unique to our space. Got it, got it. How did you how did you meet uh, Dr. Andrea? She's the one that introduced me to you. Oh uh, yeah, so Andrea was actually my co-founder uh, at at Board Vitals. Um, so uh, we built that company together. There were just two co-founders on this one, uh, or on on Board Vitals. Um, on my current company, there are actually three co-founders. Uh, but it's it's this one in particular is a is a more complicated problem to solve. Um, so we we had to bring on a doctor and a salesperson, and then I, I run the I run the technology team here. I love it. Um, what are your thoughts on branding? Putting your con- putting content out there to build your brand. What do you what do you what are your thoughts on that? Um, <laughs> it's funny. My thoughts are that I should not be the one doing it. Um, <laughs> I, I think part of part of part of being a good CEO is knowing um, where your like where your biggest weaknesses are, um, and then quickly finding someone that's better than you uh, to do that. Um, uh, and I actually think that's something that's uh, hard for entrepreneurs to realize is that you, you, you have to hire people that are better than you in almost everything. <laughs> um, it's a, it's surprisingly, it's actually a fairly humbling experience to know that, um, you're not as qualified as most of your people. <laughs> you're the, less, the least smart person in the room, right? Yeah. They, I, especially in this company. Um, you know, I've got, uh, I'm working with two of the top, uh, 10 dermatopathologists and probably some of the top AI people in the world. Um, and it's like, I can, I can maybe fumble a little bit in both. Um, but I, uh, th- there are moments of, of like, wow, I, I, I am not, I, I'm, for, I'm definitely not the smartest person in the room and I might be the dumbest. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But you're probably used to being one of the smartest people in the room, but not, not in this case. Um, I think, yeah, I think it just depends on the context. I also think that, um, you know, people say like, don't be the smartest person in the room, but sometimes you, so like, sometimes you do need to be, and sometimes you need to be the one that steps up, um, and leads. And, uh, I, I don't necessarily see that as a, as a bad thing as, as the saying goes. Um, uh, but yeah, and I, I also think that like one of the mistakes I made early on as an entrepreneur was, uh, just like hiring people to plug holes in the company. Oh, I need a, I just need an email marketing person or, Oh, I just need a, um, I need like a brand expert. Um, and looking back, what, uh, what I should have done is, is bring in, um, you know, someone that can act as like the chief marketing officer or, um, uh, someone, someone that already has a network and knows the entire scope of what needs to be filled so that later you're not, you're not coming in, you're not, you're not bringing in an expert and then they have to re rebuild or retweak the entire, uh, the entire team. 
Um, if I if I could go back and fix one thing, I think that would probably be the. the you're stop. you're a believer in branding yourself. Like you think that branding is like really. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, uh, I think that um, uh, while it's not one of my strongest suits, I think the personal branding is very important for people to be uh, for people to be seen, um, and also to build um, uh, you know credibility and reputation uh, in a you know in, in a particular space. And for me, we're you know, we're, we're definitely trying to build brand reputation in uh, pathology AI right now. Yeah. One thing that was, I think that was very uh, enlightening to me was um, I've always believed in brand. I, I, that, that's what we focus on. We focus on branding a lot. And, uh, and I was just listening to an interview of uh, Peter Thiel. I'm not sure yeah. if you're familiar with him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Zero to One is one of my favorite uh, books, actually. Just really kind of out of the box thinking. Yeah. He said... Uh, Branding is a form of monopoly. He said it's the weakest form of monopoly, but it is uh, a form of monopoly. And so if you can figure out the, the branding piece, you can monopolize in your marketplace, in, in your uh, industry. Um, and uh, and he, he always says, you know, monopolies don't like to act like monopolies because then they get harassed by the government, you know? But, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, you, you'll never hear um, Google talking about its monopoly, but they'll talk about... Um, so much competition. Uh, it's such yeah. a huge market. <laughs> <laughs> which is funny because, like <laughs> would you agree with this the, one of the biggest mistakes that people make in the, during their pitch when they're talking with investors is talking about how big the market is yeah um so i i think it's a, i think it's important to maybe throw out just a line of like okay it could be it could be potentially like this large i agree, I agree with you I agree. um uh, because you know if you if you think about portfolio theory for in in like for an investment fund um the investment funds that do the best they're they're basically buying the most potential billion dollar lottery tickets and so there there needs to be like an initial initial mind validation of uh this could potentially be a billion dollar business um to, to attract like true institutional capital um uh but i think i think you have to move on very quickly from that point and get to Okay, but here's the real deal. <laughs> there's there's that twenty billion dollar piece, but um, you know we are going after this you know couple billion dollar piece. Um, here is here is how we're approaching it, um, and here's the unit economics for um, uh, for how we for how we can actually enter this space, and and what is actually like kind of your service addressable market instead of the the total the total addressable market. Um, and one thing that I see the entrepreneurs get wrong all the time is. Um, uh, your your KPIs um, of what of how much you think you're going to sell do have to match very closely with your uh, financial model, um, and it shows that you have real rigor in thinking about the the fundamental building blocks of how you approach the market and how much you actually truly can get and how much that's going to cost to uh, to get you. Um, and so I think that that is the much more interesting part of, of presentations, um, and I try to make sure that that that, uh, that that always gets done. I always think it's interesting when somebody says somebody asks them a question regarding how how uh, they plan on commercializing and instead of telling them the strategy these guys say oh it's a 20 billion dollar market it's a 30 billion dollar market and immediately investors just like lose interest <laughs> like yeah. like what's your strategy to commercialize you know and uh th i think that's the, that's the the worst answer you can give is we have this this big of a market or whatever the case may be right because it doesn't it doesn't give you like oh but this is exactly how we're going to block and tackle um which is the uh, which is the hard, very much the hardest part. Um, and in, in my experience, the, like the idea of the business is valued, venture investors value the, um, the idea less than 1%. Um, and it's 99% about, 
uh, like work execution practitioner, um, you know, really whatever. Like I, and that makes sense. Like ideas are ideas are very cheap um, in our world, especially when we're all sharing a lot of information. Um, it's about who who actually has executional uh, and and operational expertise. Yeah, have you ever made somebody sign an NDA? <laughs> like, um, actually, I don't know that I've ever. Maybe like once or twice over something very specific. Um, but I, uh, I I found one that they're hardly ever like really enforceable. Um, yeah, two. <laughs> I'm always confused when somebody says, "Please, can you sign an NDA?" I'm like, "Okay, that's fine." I'm, it's not like I'm gonna like uh, steal your concept and then work ten years to develop it. You know? Yeah, and 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 uh, usually I actually don't want to build someone else's idea, anyways. <laughs> um, I, like if I'm going to build something, like I think I, I want to chase like a dream that uh, that like I've outlined for myself. Uh, and, and not everyone is that way. And and um, I do think entrepreneurs are really put off than when I, actually every venture investor that I've talked to, they've never they're never willing to sign an NDA. And it's because if you think about it, you're you know, you're being exposed to probably several thousand ideas in a year, and there there is so much overlap between them. Um, and as a VC, you're not you're not going to go out and like really build a, a company from one of from one of the pitches that you see. It's just, um, and, and I think I, I don't know. I think NDAs just don't belong in the in the venture world generally, and and I think most most venture capitalists would agree with that. Yeah, no, I agree too. I for whatever reason. Um, I almost, I almost lose, uh, a little bit of interest or respect for someone that asked for an NDA or me to sign an NDA because I'm like, dude, like if you, if you worked really, really hard and you developed a company that was established, uh, you know how hard it is to do that. And you don't, you're not, you don't feel threatened by someone trying to do what you're doing because it's just so difficult. So it's like, (laughs) to me, it's almost like there's less, uh, there's, um, less sophistication in someone that ask that question please sign an nda can you sign an nda you know um, yeah i would i would opinion. i would agree with that <laughs> um so anyways uh awesome so if 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 somebody's listening to this podcast perhaps it's a um a dermatologist or perhaps it's an investor how would they get a hold of you um you know the uh, best my my contact information it's a uh, dan at pathologywatch.com um, feel free to reach out. Um, I'll even uh, give my phone number out on this podcast. It's um, 801-400-8480. Uh, please just give me, you know, give me a call. Um, uh, we really like talking and really dermatologists, they do call us with questions about how this works. Um, uh, would appreciate the chance to just tell you about the benefits of, of what we're doing and how we can help your practice. I forgot to ask you, uh, if you don't mind answering this question, uh, I know it's kind of a little bit of a personal question, but um, regarding the revenue that you've generated in about a year's time for investors so they can hear. Uh, do you mind sharing that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so last year we did about 800K in revenue. Um, right now the business is about, uh, at about 1.5 million um, uh, ARR. Uh, we, were, we were on track to do quite a bit more, but um, COVID really killed people going into their dermatologists and so our, our sample volume dropped. The good news is uh, we're seeing volume pick back up, um, but also our sales team has closed a number of deals um, just even in the last few weeks to get our uh, to get our volume uh, back up to where it was and then and then past where it was. Uh, so yeah, and then uh, you know we're I, I think next year um, we'll be at we'll be able to add a, a, a couple more million in in ARR. Um, we're we're in a fast growth ramp right now, and that that's always pretty exciting. Awesome, awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for doing the podcast with me. I look forward to conversing with you again soon. Yeah. Hey, great. Thank you.